Good morning. Uh, my name is Matt um, and I'm a trainee pastor here, if, if we haven't met before. Um, let me pray uh, as we dig into um, God's word together. Father, thank you for these tough words to us in Exodus. We pray that you will speak to us, your people, as we look at them together now. Amen. Um, we've been in Exodus for a month now in our Sunday morning uh, online services, and it's been action-packed, uh, full of twists and turns. Uh, and this morning we reached the climax of the story, the moment everything has been building up to, the tenth of ten plagues. But our passage, as Amy and Phil just read for us, feels a, a bit of an anticlimax. Instead of pure, unadulterated drama, Around three quarters of it isn't action at all, but instructions, much of which is looking way ahead into the future. I'm, uh, I'm not sure it would have made it past a modern editor. But here is where we remind ourselves that Exodus isn't just a historical narrative. It is also a theological narrative. It is written to teach God's people something about him and about what it means to know him. And God has things to teach us from these events that is very much worth stopping the story to explain. Now, we spent uh, quite a lot of time last Sunday, for those who were with us, uh, considering God's judgment through the plagues. And so today we won't focus so much upon that, but rather we're going to focus on two points about God's salvation, because we see in Exodus, God's salvation through judgment. So they are um, realise that you are God's saved people and remember that you are God's saved people. So first, uh, realise that you are God's saved people. And after the drama of the big announcement in chapter 11 of God's final judgment upon Pharaoh, we expect to go straight into action in, in chapter 12. But instead, the first 11 verses of chapter 12 are taken up with instructions. Instructions for, for this special meal, this Passover. And did you notice how stringent these instructions were? Everyone must take a lamb or kid on the 10th day, verse 3. They must take exactly the amount they need for their household, verses 3 and 4. The animal must be male, one year old, and perfect, verse 5. They must be kept alive until the 14th day, verse 6, and then simultaneously killed at twilight. Straight away, the blood must be pasted on the doorposts, verse 7. And then that night, they must cook the animal. Only roasting is allowed, verses 8 and 9. And then eat it, accompanied with bitter herbs and yeast-free bread. And the whole, the whole meal must be eaten that night, verse 10. And they are to eat it, dressed, ready to leave, verse 11, with coats and shoes on. Why such a stringent set of instructions? Well, because salvation comes at a price. Salvation comes at a price. And of course, what we know from Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4, that the blood of animals does not pay that price. It is not enough to pay for our sin, the blood of a lamb 
or a goat's kid. But, but the stringency of these rules are to point forwards, to show us that salvation comes at a price, and to show us something of what salvation looks like, what it takes for sinful human beings such as us to be saved. Two things we see about what salvation looks like, what it takes. Number one, salvation requires sacrifice. Salvation requires something to be given up. For God cannot just ignore sin. He cannot turn a blind eye to it, leave human rebellion against him swept under the carpet, pretend that our adultery, love, worship and chasing after other things never really happened. At least he couldn't without stopping being himself and becoming a God that I'm not sure we would want to worship. No, God cannot be holy and turn a blind eye to sin. Sin needs paying for. And the price is high. The price is blood. Salvation requires sacrifice. And the second thing we see about salvation here, and salvation requires substitution. The only way to avoid paying that price yourself is to have something or someone pay it for you and give up their blood instead of yours. And we see here that God has incredibly given his people a way out, something to swap for their own blood, the blood of their firstborn children. A lamb, a kid, could take the firstborn child's place, could pay with its blood, so their firstborn child didn't have to pay with theirs. Salvation requires substitution. And we know, as Hebrews 10 verse 4 tells us, that the blood of animals was never going to be sacrifice enough. It couldn't be an appropriate sacrifice for sinful humanity. We know that God had a better sacrifice. We have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Hebrews 10 verse 10 tells us. God gave up his own son, the only person whose blood really could pay for our sin, because he was so good, so holy, so pure and perfect. And isn't that why the instructions were so precise? Because they point to the one who'd be the perfect sacrifice, whose body and bones wouldn't be broken. Our salvation came at a price. Let's not hold it lightly. What does this mean for us? Well, surely the first thing it means is that we are extraordinarily precious. For we are worth saving. Worth saving like this. We are worth to God, his sending of his son to die for us. You don't need to be a parent to imagine what it would be like to give up your child as a sacrifice for someone else to die for them. 
but that is what God has done for us. That is how much God loves us. And of course, we know, we, we know in our heads that he loves us. We know John 3 verse 16, probably off by heart, for God so loved the world. But do we feel it? Do we feel how precious we are to God? If you're anything like me, you're probably rather more prone to thinking that God would love me a little bit more if I did this, if I was a bit more that, if I was a bit more like that person who I'm sure he loves really a lot more than he loves me. But we are extraordinarily precious to God, each one of us. For he has sent his son to die for us. If you're watching and you wouldn't yet consider yourself a Christian, let me encourage you that you are extraordinarily precious to God. He has already shown how much he loves and values you. He's already sent his son to die for you. Be in no doubt of your value to him. You are extraordinarily precious to God. And a second application for those of us who are already Christians, um, being not just extraordinarily precious to God, but, but saved by him, comes with consequences. Consequences for how we think of and conduct ourselves and how we live our lives. Th think of the, the son of a single unemployed mum living on the poverty line in an estate in East London. Think how he begins to think a little bit differently, act a little bit differently. When he realises he's been picked out for scholarship, he's leaving the estate, he's been given a new life. And so for us, we're picked out by God, we're precious to him, we're saved by him. And that makes us think, act and conduct ourselves a little differently. 1 Corinthians 6 verses 19 to 20, Paul writes, do you not know? that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honour God with your bodies. Maybe you are struggling with, with sexual sin, as some in the church in Corinth were. Or maybe another sin to do with your body. Well, remember, says Paul, that you are extraordinarily precious to God. He has bought you at a price. It costs him deeply. So don't throw away your body and misuse it as if it means nothing. It is extraordinarily precious to God. And we see that principle applied in all sorts of different ways. In the New Testament letters, Maybe I'll chat about it with someone in your household later or, or over this week. And very briefly, um, just before we move on to our second point, uh, this salvation, uh, the departure out of Egypt uh, we read about in chapter 12, verses 31 to 39, wasn't just to be a side note in Israel's history. You know, one of many significant moments which might just about make the, the top 10 in the showreel of their national life. No. It was a nation-defining event, this exodus, a moment that would change everything. 
they were to reorder their whole year around it. Uh, chapter 12, verse 2. This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. New Year's Eve for Israel each year was to be the counting and celebrating of the years that they had been free from Egypt. And I wonder, did you spot in the passage, uh, as um, Phil and Amy read, uh, they are not the same people who they were when they went into Egypt. And, not, and they're not just bigger because they've had babies. In chapter 12, verses 37 uh, and 38, uh, look down with me. The Israelites journeyed from Ramesses to Succoth. There were about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. Many other people went up with them. Did you catch that phrase? Many other people. You'd easily miss it. Um, a, a mixed multitude. Um, the ESV translation puts it. And the Hebrew word behind it refers to a racial mix. The Israelites who left Egypt were not just ethnic Hebrews. They were made up of all sorts of people, Egyptians included, who had chosen to follow the Lord. Hence why in um, verses 43 to 49 of chapter 12, instructions are given for, for how foreigners can formally become part of Israel through circumcision. But um, that's a side note. Uh, I want to think about more uh, over the week or chat about in the home group next week, maybe, if it's of interest to you. We've seen that, um, that they were to realise that they were God's saved people. And secondly, we see that they are to remember that they are God's saved people. They are to remember. The um, oddest part of these chapters for me is, is the jump in chapter 12, uh, in verse 14, from the instructions for what they're to do that month, right now, that the first Passover before they leave Egypt, to the instructions for what they're supposed to do for the many years that lie ahead of them. And this is a day you are to commemorate for the generations to come. You shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, as a lasting ordinance, and then all the details that follow out of that. Surely, Surely this would be better saved for the second half of Exodus, the rules section, or for Leviticus. But here is where, as we reflected at the beginning, we must remember that we are reading primarily a theological text, not primarily a historical one. And if God, Exodus's divine author, felt it to be worth interrupting the story to make this particular point, it's not something we should just skip over to get to the next bit of the action. What point do all these instructions make? Well, I think that it will be essential that God's people remember what he has done for them and who they now are in him. It will be essential that they remember this. Now, that might not sound like rocket science. I mean, how, how hard was it going to be for them to remember the events of the Exodus? No, they're not slaves anymore. Surely not very. And yet, was this not the very generation who a few chapters later we will read in a few weeks' time forgot what God had done for them and grumbled against him in the wilderness and lost the privilege of being the first to enter the promised land? And if they forgot, despite everything God had done for them, everything they had seen, are we so confident that we will do better? 
No, not, not that we all forget the facts. I mean, they didn't forget the events of the Exodus, did they? We won't forget what happened to Jesus on the cross. But we might forget why we needed that. We might forget that we needed it at all. We might forget what it felt like to be enslaved by sin. And we might forget how good God's promises are and how worth clinging on to they are. We won't forget the facts of our salvation, just like they didn't. But brothers and sisters, do not underestimate the risk of forgetting who your God is, what it is to be one of his saved people, and why that is better than going back to slavery to sin. But more on that uh, in the weeks to come as we continue through Exodus. But for now, isn't it interesting how they are told to remember? This instruction to commemorate these events with the festival of the unleavened bread each year, at the heart of which would lie a reenactment of that first Passover. And there are two things, I think, for us to learn in how they're told to remember. Um, the first is that remembering is corporate, not just individual. And the second is that remembering is active, not just intellectual. So first, Remembering is corporate, not just individual. They are told to remember together, as a people, when they are gathered together. Now, of course, that's not to say that the Israelites weren't encouraged to pray and reflect on their own, in private, in their tents, about what God had done for them, the firstborn son of their own family that God had mercifully spared. I'm sure they were. But that's not what they're told to do here. They're told to remember together, to gather together, to remember and to celebrate what God had done for them. Remembering was to be a corporate activity, first and foremost, not just an individual one. And don't we, in the post-Reformation West, slip all too easily into thinking of our faith as primarily an individual thing? It's me on my knees before God. And of course, it's different for us than what it was for them. We, we have the Holy Spirit living in each of our hearts. We have God's word written to read in our laps. And we should be hungering to read our Bibles and to pray on our own each day when we can't necessarily be with other believers to do it. But nevertheless, and someone can then correct me if I'm wrong on this, I'll picnic later. I think we find far more instructions for corporate worship in the New Testament for what Christians are to do when they're gathered together as a church for worship. Then we find instructions for private acts of devotion. And it's been wonderful, hasn't it, during this pandemic, um, to be able to continue to meet here online and in some sense be together to worship from the comfort of our own homes. But as society opens up, I think we must ask ourselves, for how much longer we're, we're really willing to consider being on Zoom or YouTube as being together. Maybe now is the time, if you haven't already, to start coming or, or to make a commitment to coming regularly to our in-person afternoon services. And I think there's an application here to, to how we see the relationship between our personal times with the Lord and our Sunday worship. 
I so easily slip into thinking that if I really want to hear God speak, that the first and foremost way I interact with God is on my own, in my personal, private, quiet time, reading Christian books, listening to sermons from other churches. And those are good things to do. But I just wonder, I just wonder reading this passage, whether I've got that balance right or whether I've developed a rather more individualistic way to think about faith than God intends for his people. Belonging to a church matters. Being part of a a regular Sunday service with God's people matters. Hearing from and worshipping God together matters. It is not just me on my own, on my knees before God. We are meant to worship and remember together. Second, remembering is active, not just intellectual. Isn't it interesting that the way God calls his people to remember is by doing something? They're given a festival, a series of festivals to conduct at a certain time, in a certain way, with particular things to act out and to do. And again, I'm sure quiet reflection was encouraged too. I'm sure each of them was also encouraged to simply think and reflect upon what, had God, upon what God had done for them. But that's not what they're instructed to do here. No, they're given something to do. A way to remember that isn't simply sitting on a chair and thinking, but involved doing things, acting things out. And you know, as someone who struggles to sit still and focus on prayer and reflection for any length of time, I find that quite a relief. Maybe you do too. And we've been given something to act out to, haven't we? Something to do. We've been given the Lord's Supper, a set of actions for us to do, given to us by our Lord Jesus himself to help us remember what he has done for us. As we take the bread and as we take the cup, We reflect, of course we reflect, but we don't simply just think some stuff about Jesus. No, we we act out with our bodies what we are doing in our hearts. We act out taking, receiving, accepting what Jesus offers. And our physical receiving of the elements symbolises our spiritual receiving of Jesus' offer of salvation. And of course, as we were thinking about just now, we do it together. We don't take the Lord's Supper on our own. We do it as one body. God has given us something to do. For remembering is active, not just intellectual. And um, I've been convicted over the last 14 months or so, in which it's not been so easy to take the Lord's Supper, of how much we perhaps, or I at least, neglect it. I think we're especially prone to this in non-conformist circles. And we're rightly wary of empty ritual. I mean, empty ritual is where the Israelites ended up, worshipping God with their actions, but not their hearts. And they ended up in exile. And so we're right to be wary of empty ritual, of, of saying words and completing actions, which have been divorced of all meaning and significance and to which faith is not attached. But... But I don't think that means that there's no place for ritual at all. For doing things with our bodies, 
that help our minds and our souls to focus, understand and remember. For remembering is active, not just intellectual. Another reason to come to our in-person afternoon services, perhaps, uh, where we take the Lord's Supper each time we meet. Let us be wary of thinking that we are so much better, so much greater than these Israelites, that we don't need what God told these people they needed. Every bit of help they could find to cling on to their great God, who had rescued them in the most incredible way. Let's pray now. Father, we thank you that you brought your people out of Egypt, out of slavery. We thank you that you provided a sacrifice, a substitute. And we thank you that you called them to remember, not just by thinking, not just on their own, by acting out these festivals festivals, and by remembering together. Give us a greater, a deeper knowledge of how you have saved us. That you think we are extraordinarily precious, precious enough to send your son to die for us. And help us to commit to remembering Thank you for the Lord's Supper. Thank you for the body of the church. Teach us what it means to remember what you have done for us and to live as your saved people. Amen.